I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the London Review Bookshop. It's a real pleasure to welcome Tom Stevenson and Tarek Ali. Uh, Tom's a reporter and an essayist, as well as being a contributing editor for that august institution, the London Review of Books. Um, Someone Else's Empire is his first full-length book, published by Verso in association with the London Review of Books. He'll be in conversation this evening with Tarek Ali, who really needs no introduction from me, the author of more than 45 books over many years, including as well as political writing, novels, memoirs and plays. Most recently, Winston Churchill, His Times, His Crimes. Tarek, Tom, good evening, welcome. Hi. Hi, everyone. Uh, very glad to be here, and I was uh, very pleased to be asked because it's after a very long time uh, that I've read a book on politics and history that I've enjoyed so much. I, I say this quite openly. Those who know me know that I usually don't say these sort of things that are rather the opposite. Uh, but when I read the book, I thought it worked extremely well, was very critical. And I wasn't surprised because I'd been reading Tom's uh, uh, essays and articles and reports from abroad in the London Review of Books uh, for some time. And there was a mystery for some of us. Where did they find him? I'm not joking either, because this level of consistency and research and regularity in a magazine is, is, not, is quite rare, even for that magazine, even for other magazines. And the lack of someone from his generation and his caliber in the liberal press, which is, uh, of course, due to other reasons as well. But uh, I I was quite uh, staggered by. And the book, of course, couldn't be more apposite uh, at this particular time, discussing how Britain became a total stooge state of the United States, and now even more than during the Iraq war, because during the Iraq war there was a split within the political establishment, which we knew about then, but we know about now. Sixty ambassadors, ex-ambassadors, signing a public letter to the Times on refusing to back the Iraq war. Uh, The Daily Mirror, front page, come on the demonstration. Uh, many, many other things which showed 
uh, the divisions and very serious and uh, senior people who had been in the security segment of the state uh, writing texts in the Financial Times which are extremely critical. So basically, as Tom's book argues, this has been a continuing pattern. There's a Iraq actually divided them, and now Jeff Hoon, who was then Defense Secretary, his papers have been released, and he says that the Million Strong March did frighten us. And we did think perhaps we shouldn't go into this war. So much for those who say demonstrations mean nothing. And they were taken aback by the size and scale of it, because what they had to then do in public, which they've got used to, is deny the people consent. People, and the opinion polls showed this, the majority of the country was opposed to the war. And the demonstration showed it even further because it was before the war took place. But they decided not to rule by consent. That is what they decided to do, the government of the day, just like... Today, they are deciding not to rule by consent, if anything, the exact opposite on the question of the ceasefire. 70% in the last opinion poll for a ceasefire in uh, Palestine, Israel. Government wants to ban the demonstration and has done so on Saturday because it's a hate march. I was asked on the radio the other day, do you think it's a hate march? I said, well, in a way it is, but the only person everyone hates is Suella Braverman. <laughs> so in that sense, you could describe it as a, as a hate march. But anyway, that's the situation we're in to get down to the nitty-gritty. John, first, just tell me a bit about yourself. How did you get immersed in this in this side of politics. It's very rare, I have to say. Yes, how on earth did it happen? Uh, I, well, I started, my first job in journalism was very dull. I was working for the FT uh, on pensions, which was really pretty much insufferable. And, uh, and the Arab Spring happened, uh, which was m- much less insufferable and much more interesting. And so uh, I decided that a better idea would be to... Uh, go and see what was happening there. And to take as a starting point the eruptions that were happening principally in Egypt, but also in North Africa and very quickly elsewhere. And uh, that was, uh, I think, for, for almost anyone who was involved in any sense, in any lim- tiny sense as I was, uh, was a formative experience. And I spent uh, then uh, several years um, living and reporting um, in the Middle East, often in Cairo, uh, sometimes elsewhere. Uh, and I discovered something which I thought was quite interesting, which is that um, there were many very talented colleagues who, uh, who worked very hard, seriously at their jobs, but who seemed to me to be missing a key part of the story, and, which is this, that it, it's possible to spend many years, apparently, reporting from the Middle East um, diligently, day by day, doing your work, without noticing, apparently the enormous shaping influence that the United States still has, that United States politics still has, that the, not the vice regents, but the 
everyday representatives of the, of the Pentagon, of the U.S. military as an institution have in most of the Arab states, certainly in Egypt, clearest of all. Um, and I found that fascinating. Uh, I thought, you know, as, as, as detailed as you would like to get on any subject, you can still miss something sort of as, as important as that. Uh, you can miss the military takeover of a state by a military that is, by and large, tutored by American officers, um, that, is, that has regular contact with their British counterparts as well, and certainly with British industry regularly, and consider that to be of no consequence. Hmm. And my starting point has instead been to say, uh, if we're going to sit in London, uh, if we're going to write in English, uh, that seems to me to be an important part of the story. Um, that's something that we can take off from and see where it leads us. Um, so I would say that the beginning of the book is that, and uh, obviously a, a, a good deal of it is, is not just reportage, but an attempt at a sort of a subsequent historical account of how a state of affairs like that might have come into being. Well, that's the thing that's very striking about the book, but it also sort of brings to the fore the fact that even when people get angry, they get worked up, young people marching here in the States, uh, it's fantastically moving to watch and participate in. But yet, very few of them have any idea of the history of this conflict. And this sort of missing element, which is relatively new, I would say 20, 25 years of, the, of uh, this period, uh, is quite frightening. Because somehow think things happen out of nowhere. And I mean, Eric Hobsbawm's title, The Short 20th Century, I think we can now say uh, was not apposite because the 20th century hasn't stopped. It's, it's still going on, not just in Palestine, Israel, in the revival of the Cold War, um, hostilities to China, which have been manufactured largely for economic reasons, uh, demonization of Russia correctly on the Ukraine, but it goes way beyond that. And um, it's this sort of absence of history. I mean, when you were studying, was history, you know, central to you? Well, yes, absolutely. I mean, I think there's, there's no way to get anywhere unless you're willing to try to do, yeah. you know, that sort of account. That, that certainly goes without saying. And I think, I mean, it's, it's sort of impossible, <laughs> this, you know, in these weeks to sort of avoid talking about Israel-Palestine one way or another. I think that's obviously inevitable. Uh, and, I, and I think it does really come down to a matter of, as you said, to, the, to a, a sense of historical perspective and also to a sense of perspective in the strict sense, which is that when we approach a subject like this, it's one thing to respond on a human level to stories of atrocities. And it's necessary also to respond on a human level to, to the terrible acts which we say playing out. We're now involved in a sort of an experiment, Right. You know, how long can you live stream a despicable, destructive massacre like this? How, how, how long can you keep it going? You know, that's, that seems to be what's playing out. How many neighborhoods do you have to see completely destroyed? Um, 
it's one thing to respond to that as we must emotionally um, or in the moment. And then it's another to try to say, well, okay, we aren't there, but we are here. And the reason that Israel is able to act as it is currently acting right now in Gaza is because the policies of the United States principally, but also of the UK, and I hope we can get in, we will certainly get into why that's the case, are organized precisely in order to allow Israel to do what it is currently doing. And that is not the, the only case in the world, but it's the one that we sort of are drawn to talk about in this moment. Yeah, two, two things that come to mind. Very understandable emotions aroused when children are killed. Whatever children, Jewish children, Arab children, whoever they may be. And I was thinking about this in connection to something else I was working on. And then suddenly I remembered that the number of children who died in Iraq before the Iraq war, Tom, as a result of sanctions uh, uh, is astonishing if you think about it. I mean... I remember Leslie Stahl, one of the leading foreign correspondents of CBS in the United States, asking Madeleine Albright during the sanctions. uh, The reports coming in from UNICEF and others indicate that half a million Iraqi children have died because of your sanctions. Uh, she didn't say, she could have said, and half of these are under five. And do you think it's a price worth paying? And Madeleine Albright said, yes, we're aware of the figures, and yes, it's a price worth paying. Shock, horror anywhere, excuse me? No, not really. It was just taken for granted perhaps because there weren't images coming out. That's not impossible, but I think it goes a bit beyond that. It is a sort of tradition in the West, even after decolonization and everything, that human lives of others don't particularly matter if you're not European and if you don't belong to the United States. Otherwise, the figure from Iraq is just totally horrific. When I think about it in contrast to, you know, either the the killings going on now, horrific though they are, they do not compare to what was done to Iraq. That's why I say that one should never, never uh, underestimate. The second example that comes to mind, people say, well, how could we end the mess? of Israel-Palestine. You know, what What can we do? I said the only country that can do it like this is the United States of America. In 1957, a year after the Suez War, when Israel first occupied Gaza for four months, uh, the American president sent a message saying, I want you out of Gaza. I mean, it was a direct message. The president was Eisenhower. He said, out of Gaza. They prevaricated. Eisenhower said, if you don't get out of Gaza, we're going to impose sanctions on you. Within two weeks, they'd left Gaza. So this link with the United States is crucial. And 
Why do you, I mean, they could still do it, of course, but they won't. Why do you think they won't, Tom? I mean, it, it's not just the lobby and the fact that all the politicians are made, paid lots of dosh by the Israelis. I think the tail doesn't wag the dog, however much you, you know, massage it. Uh, what do you think is the reason? Well, I mean, there's an enormous amount to say. I mean, firstly, just the, on the question of, of children and civilian casualties, I, there's a wonderful contemporary Egyptian author, Mohammed Kir, who has this line, there are no victims under 30 in one of his novels, which is, uh, which is spoken, incidentally, it's not a, it's not a pres- prescription, it's spoken by a representative of the Egyptian state, by a policeman, as a justification in that way. And it's clear why civilian casualties, and especially the casualties... The killing of children has such an emotional valence in the way that it does. But nonetheless, it shouldn't be something, I think, that, that overalls all other concerns. And uh, Hans von Spernick gave that what subsequently turned out to be the correct account, even though he was maligned at the time of the many hundreds of thousands of casualties in Iraq, even before the American invasion, the joint, excuse me, American-British invasion in 2003. Uh, how how we got to this point and why it's the case. Why does the, the US uh, and Britain always in lockstep with it continue to support Israel unquestioningly in the way that it does? There I think you have to really start to get into the question of what is Anglo-American Middle East policy? Mm. And I think when you do that and when you, when you try to take some sort of historical account of it, what you come out with is an idea that the United States has had a a fixed focus on the Persian Gulf and on hydrocarbon resources in particular. That's very clear. The world at the present technological industrial capabilities requires oil and runs on oil as a lifeblood. So it's clear why they're focused on that. That's what justifies and I think underlies the policy towards the Gulf dictatorships. What's amazing is the extent to which this has been extended out into the wider Middle East region in order to brook no challenge whatsoever or to try and head off and sterilize uh, any possible challenge to the core Gulf monarchies, whether that's as far as maintaining Israel as a sort of sentinel state, whether that's in Egypt, whether it's as far west as Libya, whether it's even to as far east as, if, as Afghanistan, as we, have, as we have seen. An incredible project, which is really dependent on shoring up the American position right in the center of Eurasia in that way. And I think that requires that, that sort of geopolitical, not in the, sense, in the degraded sense as a synonym for international politics, but in the, almost in the original geopolitics sense, which is very often the way that I think that animates the State Department thinkers, the Pentagon thinkers, the Foreign Office thinkers, even when, when you speak to them those who do the real work and get down nitty-gritty into it. And what does it produce? It produces exactly what we're seeing now. It produces any justification for violence that you can have on on, on the grounds of protecting what is in essence a strategic position bound up with this sense of the entire global order, of maintaining the hierarchy as it exists today. A few days ago, there was a talk at Chatham House some very distinguished speech, speakers, including the, the British ambassador to the United States, Karen Pierce. Um, they talked about multipolarity. They talked about many wonkish concepts, uh, you know, technical terms in international relations. 
But Pierce's fundamental message was, we need to ensure that there is no retreat from Britain and the European allies supporting the American role as prime, supporting American primacy in the international system. And if that means, this is while this is going on in, in Gaza, if that means destroying Gaza, bombing, carpet bombing it back to the Stone Age, then so be it. He said that. Well, no, she certainly didn't say that. No. What, she said, <laughs> what she said was, we must have no retreat from American global leadership and ensuring the systems of American power are yeah. retained in place. My commentary is, and if that means... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Tom, one key development which is not fully understood but is absolutely critical to the Middle East, of course it's linked to everything that's going on, but it marked a huge shift and a change from the nationalist period of Arab politics, Nasser, the rise of the Ba'ath, all that, uh, to the capitulation of Egypt, that they needed. I mean, you know, I remember in the 60s and 70s, we used to say Jerusalem, yes, but not without Cairo, meaning a mass movement in Cairo, not the state necessarily. And that has been crushed. And the, the Tehrir Square, the uprisings, didn't mention foreign policy at all. Very deliberate decision they took. They did not mention, not even uh, uh, Hamas's chums and the Muslim Brotherhood. They didn't mention it. It was kept uh, separate. Um, but Egypt... Uh, the fact that the U.S. pays its army its salaries and a lot more besides has been a completely underrated uh, uh, account. And the fact that the Egyptians, as your book explains, the chapter on the Egyptian prisons, etc., and Egyptian polity is quite horrific. I mean, it goes on nonstop, the torture. The toppling of Mubarak didn't stop it. You know, for a bit it did, and then it came back again. For a week or two. For a week, yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that's that's really the remarkable fact. I mean, I think given the context of what we've just been talking about, this idea of maintaining what you might, what I would call a core imperial position in the Persian Gulf itself, and then securing that with a sort of a wider regional policy, until 1979 when American dominance in the Middle East was still quite young, because we have to recall that the British position, in fact, didn't fully peter out until 1971, mm. relatively late, much later than we're accustomed to thinking about the British Empire. But it's still, in the Middle East, it persists quite late. The American position until 19, between 1971 and 79 could rely on a very pliant Iran, which is they had the Shah, mm. had someone they could do business with, enormously powerful state, and you had both sides of the Gulf, okay, you had a, a, the, the principal protectorate in Saudi Arabia, and you had Iran on the other side. Then you have the Iranian revolution in 1979, and that poses a, a big problem, which is you have a state which, in this case, rather than secular nationalist, is revolutionary and religious, but nonetheless is not willing to have any cup with any of this. What... what what the response was, what was I think a combination of fortune and, good and, and hard work, was that the Americans, with some help from the British, were able to do good work in Egypt. 
and were able to get the Egyptian dictatorship on side in a way which was quite unexpected. You have a peace deal with Israel, and you have the beginning of the integration of the Egyptian army into the, the moors, uh, into the ways of doing things that the Anglo-American system can, can understand. And that has been, remained remarkably stable from 1979 right through to the present with really, and I, I said it flippantly, but with really only a few weeks, unfortunately, during the attempted revolution in 2011, that system has remained with Egypt as, as playing this pivotal, <clears throat> pivotal role that, you, that the U.S. might have hoped that Iran would have played in the past. So, and that brings us right to today. Why is it the case that it's so difficult to get any form of solidarity through Egypt, including aid through the Rafah crossing, mostly because Israel refuses it, also because Egypt wants to play no constructive role whatsoever. And when I say Egypt, I, of course, don't mean the population of Egypt. We're referring to the military dictatorship, which, as you said, requires an industrial-scale level of repression in order to prevent the formation of solidarity movements, the natural feeling of solidarity that there is with, with Palestinians in Egypt today. And it's, they've, they've been quite effective in doing that, right to, the, right to this day. Let's come to our wonderful country, Tom. Uh, making a decision after the Second World War that come what may, this was a decision, of course, that Churchill wanted. And, you know, he made no secret of it. It was public as far as he was concerned. But the government that came after the war was a Labour government. And this Labour government, I mean, I know that this sort of, uh, sort of, Romance surrounds the Attlee government because most of his successes were pretty awful. But uh, how would you... I, I was thinking the other day, the formation of the National Health Service with one hand and fully supporting the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki on the other. You know, how, how would we look at it on the scales of history? in another few few years' time, given that they're trying to do away with the NHS and this Labour government actually might, uh, the Starmer government if it comes into being. But in any event, la- uh, the point is that Labour decided under Bevin's uh, foreign secretaryship to carry on just as before on every level. There was no debate on NATO, not totally true. There was a debate at the party conference and there was a debate within the top circles and they decided to go with that. And since that time, with the possible exception of Wilson refusing to send troops to Vietnam, they sent a lot else, by the way, including SAS units. Uh, the The only prime minister who refused to allow the Americans to use British bases in 1973 was Edward Heath, a conservative, not Labour. So by and large, there's been a sort of continuous pattern of, you know, basically doing what the Americans want you to do. This has now got so bad that just 
Two days ago, Michael Portillo, the former Tory minister, said on the television news, Channel 4 News, that of course Starmer can only become prime minister if he does every single thing he wants. And that's one reason uh, that he won't come out for a ceasefire. Because it's an, it's he can't do it before the Americans do it. And they said to Portillo, is that your position as well? He said, yeah, it's all the, it's the position of all British politicians who want to be in power. It's, it's remarkable. And it's also remarkable, given the demonstrations that we've seen, the gulf that now exists between supposedly untutored public opinion and elite consensus. It's, it's a really, truly a remarkable bifurcation that we've experienced. I mean, on the, on the subject of how this came to be, and as you, you said correctly, not just on the, conser- on the part of the Conservatives, but very definitely on the part of the Labour Party, Clement Attlee was, was happy to have a photograph of Harry Truman on his mantelpiece after the bombings. You know, it's, it's remarkable. It sounds like a sort of a made-up detail from a novel, but that's, that's what happened. You can see that in the, in the recent biographies. So I, I think the only way, to, again, to go through this is to try and, do, is to try and sketch out a historical account in... And, and to do that, you have to go back, I think, again, to the, to the height of the British Empire. Mm. So in, in 1907, Aya Crow, probably the preeminent diplomat of the, of the day, gives this incredible statement. He says, he says English, but he, he means British foreign policy, is determined by the immutable fact of Britain's status as an island nation off the coast of Europe with vast colonial dependencies, they depend on predominant sea power. Well, within one generation, the predominant sea power was gone. It had been mm-hmm. ceded to the United States. Within two generations, almost all of the vast dependencies and colonies had also been either lost or rented out in one form or another, if we're talking about Diego Garcia in the Chagos Islands. Or perhaps you could even say something similar about Cyprus hmm. uh, with, returns, with regard to military facilities. So what was to be done? As you said, Churchill in 1946 is clear. He says the British Empire is going to abide. And yet within 10 years, once you have Suez, the message becomes cleave as closely as possible to the Americans as you possibly can. And I think that contains the core of the matter. Well, incidentally, in 1946, when, when uh, Churchill gave the Fulton speech, the famous Iron Curtain speech, is the same day, the exact same day, that the first version of the Five Eyes intelligence sharing agreement is signed then just between the United Kingdom and the United States, exactly the same day, becomes then extended to five eyes with the the incorporation of newly independent former white dominions, providing this framework, which then becomes what we we know today as the NSA, GCHQ, global surveillance system, so important to the war-making capacity and everything else. Very interesting to be able to see these roots, I think. It took a couple of... It took a while for these things to work out. So by the 60s, as you say, Wilson is still refusing to send British troops along to Vietnam, although, as you also noticed, Britain was willing to redeploy naval assets to cover gaps that would otherwise have been there so that the United States could send its own troops, was able to provide signals intelligence from remaining facilities in the Far East, some help. Not the kind that we'll later see in the Iraq war, but nonetheless, some signs that things might be headed in that direction. By the time you get through to the Falklands War, it's clear that Britain's reliant on the United States, and the United States didn't like what Britain was doing necessarily, but still willing to provide the Sidewinder missiles, which everybody now agrees were absolutely critical to Britain's performance against an ill-prepared Argentinian army. Uh, 
And then we get to the 1990s, where I think even before Blair, but during the Blair era, we get the real crystallization of, of what has been building up to in this, which is that the interventions in Yugoslavia, in Kosovo, and in Sierra Leone, which are interesting topics, but it's remarkable to go back and look at the debates and the discourse at the time, which put so much emphasis on the formation of a moral foreign policy, on a new era, on a shining example, promotion of human rights, and so on. And yet, when we look back on them today, we can have interesting historical discussions about them, no question, um, and many of them with, with a great deal of nuance, but we don't rest such stories on them. What we instead see is what would be used as the justifications for the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq, for bringing, the, bringing British forces wholesale into the Iraq invasion in a way that wasn't even possible in Vietnam. Uh, and I think that you know, something like that is how you have to try and, try and approach this. And it's with us still today. From the, the chastening experience in Iraq, has, as awful as it now is universally acknowledged to be, even by the vast majority of people who will claim that they were against it and weren't against it at the time, we were, we're able to see very similar arguments coming through with Libya and even with Yemen. Mm. What used to happen when it came to crimes, essentially, that were committed by British forces supplementing the U.S. was that we didn't talk about them, you know, or we lied about them. At least we had the good race to lie about them. With Yemen, do we even mention them? It's absolutely remarkable. You can have, you know, you can have more than half a million people killed. You can have an enormous, at-scale, Anglo-American, Saudi invasion of Yemen, which is absolutely devastating. For many years, the worst humanitarian crisis in the yeah. world, and it's, it's just not a subject of conversation. I mean, it's a, truly remarkable. So I think that's where it's led us. And I think there's, there's a lot more to be said. You can, you can see by how skeleton the argument that I've given is that there's, there's work to be done on these subjects, but how about we open them up is my idea. Yeah, well, I can uh, publicly commission you to do a new book for Versa, uh, part two of the present one. But uh, anyway, I hope you are working on this uh, at all. Uh, yeah, I think we should turn to questions I thought it was very, very interesting, and, and thank you both very much indeed. Uh, this fantastic breadth of perspective there. Uh, so this could sound like nitpicking. Um, in my conception, my, uh, my father was a diplomat. He retired in 1985, so he covers some of these, these periods uh, in the Foreign Office. And the, the impression I got from his career and, and also from my own study of history is that, is that uh, there was far more independence of the UK vis-a-vis -vis the US while the Cold War was in progress and before we joined the EU. And there was this sense that this is what they, the, the Foreign Office saw as their role, as sort of tugging the American sleeve, you know, to be a bit less crazy about Israel. Uh, and you have that extraordinary exception that proves the rule of Eisenhower of Eisenhower stopping them. And, and just two exceptions, because I think it would be a little harsh on Harold Wilson, who said, it's, LBJ comes along and says, come on, guy, join in. And he's absolutely horrified by the idea. And there was no way that, that Britain was going to get involved in that. And so he said, all right, well, I'll send an Australian battalion. And that's what they did. This was excuses not to get involved. <clears throat> and there's a little lesser-known period. Ten years beforehand, Harold Macmillan, uh, I, they, they tried to uh, row Britain into Tien Bien Phu. They tried to. Um, Eisenhower said, I will support 
the U.S. military throwing everything to support the French to relieve the siege of Dien Bien Phu, so long as the Allies agree. And Harold Macmillan, like Harold Wilson, just threw up his hands in horror and said, absolutely no way are we going to get involved in this. Uh, anyway, just a new Thank you. Um, shall I? Yeah. Shall I? I mean, I, I think that there's certainly something to be said. Look, in, in, in this story, there are many, there are oscillations. There's no question. Nonetheless, I, I would say that, I mean, it's not, I don't think that's quite the correct, correct calculation with regard to Vietnam. I mean, it is certainly true that the, con, the conventional view has been that. But as a matter of fact, Britain did offer counterinsurgency experience for the, for the U.S. They said, look, we've had all this time <clears throat> in Malaya uh, carrying out basically colonial repression, and we think this might be useful for you. And it was actually the U.S. that turned it down on that occasion, because they didn't really believe, as a mirror of what would later happen in Iraq, when Britain came in saying, look, we've had all this experience in Northern Ireland. We, knew, we know how to deal with, you know, running, running counterinsurgency. And the Americans were able to, were, you know, they would listen to that for about three months and then saw that there was nothing much to it, because it was a complete disaster in every respect. So, I mean, I, it, obviously, there's a, there's a transition between Vietnam and Iraq, which requires explanation, certainly. But I think that the story is not quite as clear um, as all that about, about Vietnam either, unfortunately. And just to add to that, even in the case of Australia, uh, where Britain pushed to send in troops, which they did, a huge anti-war movement emerged in Australia and finally elected Gough Whitlam, Labour Party, Australian Labour Party leader who's opposed the Vietnam War as uh, Prime Minister. And Britain then had him removed. Uh, John Pilger has told the story of the coup that toppled uh, uh, poor old Gough Whitlam uh, uh, in Australia. Very, very decent guy. Just wondered if you might want to talk a little bit about the Far East and sort of east of Suez generally. I'm thinking... I don't know if it's in the book, but the piece you wrote, I think, was a review article on Kennedy's naval history of the yeah, Second World War. It strikes me uh, that uh, in very great respect, um, Singapore in 1942 was very much our strange defeat. You go back to the agonies of deciding what to do sort of naval policy back in the 20s, um, and then going on to you know, the Sands Review, and then final decision after devaluation in 67 uh, to pull out of East of Suez, where exactly we are now. I'm thinking, which I think you allude to in your piece, the HMS Defender, which was actually working, I think, at the time, you know, in um, off Crimea, and yeah. there's potential for calamity there. And, you know, so what are we doing in the Far East in the, With the present pending crisis? Yeah, I, I think that's a fascinating story and one we, uh, one we haven't touched on. And that, again, not to harp on about the subject, but does go back to the, to the, to the political history in the 1960s. Because uh, after Dean Acheson's famous comment that Britain had lost an empire and failed to find a role, and the much less famous but I think more consequential comment that, it was that uh, Acheson made in a, in, a, in a letter to the American uh, diplomat Robert Schetzel that what, what needed to happen was for the U.S. to make Britain into a lieutenant. Uh, what happened was the U.S. officials in the State Department tried to persuade the British government to maintain as much of its east of Suez position as possible, because at that time they thought it was sort of a useful addendum. 
Uh, and the, the British government in that period was, was re- reluctant to do that. And you can even find in the records, Rusk, with meetings with Rusk and so on, where the British officials are, say, are saying, well, you know, why would we do that when the empire isn't there anymore? So, you know, these, I think these sort of these strands are, are possible to tease out. But as you say, uh, there's been something of a reversal on that front, which is that we now have the carrier groups, as you say, and also the literal response groups when they're, when they're actually working. Um, the first movement of the, of the first British carrier group um, of the modern era was to go to the Indo-Pacific. Mm. That was the first, the first thing, which, which strikes us now in light of the Ukraine war is sort of remarkable when now there's so much focus on Britain's role as a NATO stalwart, on the, necess- the necessity of uh, rebuilding the position in Eastern Europe, that the major defense procurement program of, of, the, of the last decade, essentially, which has been on the two carrier groups, the first mission is to go to the Indo-Pacific, is to sail you know, as close as possible to the Taiwan Strait, as, not through it, but as, straight, as close as possible to the Taiwan Strait as can be done. And, and, and if you ask that question, you have to ask, well, why is that the priority? You know, what, there isn't really a political force in Britain that's even remotely interested in that question. I don't think you can even argue that there's a, you know, if you wanted to put it in, say, in, in materialist terms, that there's a class coalition that's, that's interested in the subject of, uh, you know, of potential confrontation with China. The, the United States is interested in, in that, no question. But is, 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 any, is any, you know, even, even, even uh, embryonic pr- British political force interested in that question? Well, well, I don't, I don't see that you can, then you can say that. So, so what's happened instead is that the Royal Navy has tried to do as best it can to, to act as a sort of a, an 8 to 10% uh, reinforcement <laughs> for the American position as far as possible. So, yes, reopening the naval bases in, in al-Dakam, in Oman, and in Bahrain, where the U.S., of course, always has its, its, its positions anyway, in order simply to provide additional ships. Uh, and, if, and if that means sailing the HMS Defender rather than an American ship uh, as close to Crimea as possible immediately before the Ukraine war, then it'll take that form. And if it means carrier groups uh, sailing through the East and South China Seas, then it'll take that form. Um, you have to, I think you really have to ask where the priorities are coming from. And unfortunately, I don't think you can draw any conclusion than that they are coming from Washington. It, I mean, in every country, foreign policy is a kind of an elite technocratic subject, idiosyncrasy to some extent. That's, you know, you can't think, I, I don't think, unfortunately, of, of an exception to that. But in this case, you know, it's not even an elite, an elite pro, uh, preoccupation that there has to be a British confrontation with China. It's, it's just an American, uh, mm. it's entirely an American priority. And yet that's what we're doing. What do you think, if any, the impact of the sort of increasingly inchoate nature of domestic policy, or politics, sorry, in the U.S., is likely to have on its global strategic uh, priorities any? Shall I? <laughs> I think that that ties in very much to the question of um, American decline. Because I think a natural question that someone might, might have, that any of us might have, looking at this picture, is saying, well, okay, let's say Britain sort of tied itself to the American flag in this way, fine. But what about, isn't the American sort of well, global position disintegrating in various <clears throat> ways? And, and that argument really took off after the election of Trump. In my view, there was, in some ways, this was a sort of a hysterical reaction. Because, I mean, 
I, I'm sure it won't surprise, be any surprise to hear that I you know, was sort of kind of horrified by the election of Trump, as, ever, as probably most other people were, by the brashness of it. Brashness of it. But I think if you, if you try and do an analysis of Trump foreign policy, you come up with some strange results, which is that it, you know, in the U.S., Trump was presented as an isolationist, which is, it's, it, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of how they used to work, use the word socialist. It's, it's sort of just a stock insult. You know, it doesn't have any, any analytical meaning. He was called an isolationist who was going to completely dismantle the American position, get rid of all the alliances. It would be the end of, end of, end of the old rules-based international order or the liberal international order. What Trump did was pretty much in line with, I mean, there are, there are, at the edges, there are tweaks which were not like this, but pretty much in, in line with uh, previous administrations. And in fact, many, I mean, Robert Lighthizer, who was in, in many, he was the trade secretary, but in many ways he ran the, <laughs> he ran the foreign ministry because there was very rarely a secretary of state. He was a Reagan official, you know, he was a former Reagan official. Esper came out of, uh, came out of the, the Obama mm. administration and many other cases. So polit- I think you could have made the argument that the, the disintegration of the American political system is going to lead you know, to, to a, a thoroughgoing questioning of the American global position many times in the last 50 years. And it, it hasn't come to the fore. I think probably because of institutional inertia, apart from anything else. But I don't know what, uh, what you think about that. No, you're probably right. I mean, after every foreign disaster, people say the Americans are on the decline. I've always been opposed to this view. Uh, for a number of reasons, uh, both ideological but also economic, that on key matters, the United States economically is still a dominant part, despite all the uh, uh, trouble at home and crises within the system. And it's not been on the decline after the defeat in Vietnam. It didn't go, though people thought it would. Uh, and it's not been on the decline uh, since. But, Tom, there's another thing on Britain's relationship to the United States, which I used to wonder about a bit more, was that could it in some way also have been related to a sort of desperation, um, especially after German reunification, that not to let Germany become the principal power in Europe so that the United States could just push Britain to the side temporarily when it needed to and do the deals with the Germans? Well, that's a fascinating question. I mean, you could even ask that question, I think, going back further to the Second World War and try and ask, for example, why it was that someone like Lord Allenbrook was opposed to attempting to land an Allied army in 1942, which mm. the Americans wanted to do and Britain didn't want to do. Um, chose a different strategy instead. But anyway, let's... So, with regard to reunification, I mean, in 1992, there's an incredibly consequential uh, strategic document that comes out of the U.S., which is written by Paul Wolfowitz, the Defense Planning Guidance. And uh, what it says very clearly is that the principal aim for the United States in the new era has to be ensuring that the present security arrangements with Germany and Japan remain as they are. And what's being pointed to there is not necessarily... uh, Japan as a state or Germany as a state, but maintaining the security architecture in Europe and in East Asia on American terms. So I think that that's, that's certainly, and that this is, you know, right in the moment of, you know, 
the rubble still there of the wall. Yeah. You know? this, is, <clears throat> this was the preoccupation. And that, of course, meant keeping around them uh, a lot of the fascist apparatuses in these countries. I mean, Germany, we know, Italy was huge. Japan, they maintained and kept the emperor having considered uh, trying him for war crimes. They then felt that they needed him. So the sort of so-called defeat of fascism, I mean, it was a huge event and correctly uh, analyzed as such. But the Cold War structures were already being put in, uh, put in place. And uh, the British obsession with Germany, I mean, for a while Thatcher was not so secretly saying that she was opposed to German reunification, I think must have been because they feared being overtaken. Mm, it's a quick question. Um, ben Wallace, um, he was obviously hopping mad um, and quite hilarious too. I just wonder what that meant about UK-US relationship and was there any humiliation involved there? Whether there's humiliation... I mean, I think that um, the, the perspective of the sort of security principles in the US with regard to their British... Uh, equivalence is very often one of deep suspicion, ironically. And so, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised to hear that your assessment of him as hopping mad was, you know, was, uh, was shared somewhat more widely. Um, so, yes, it's, it's entirely possible. I mean, Wallace's position has, has been to be the hawk's hawk. He's been to say what we need is to make sure we're bombed up. You know, that was almost his last... <laughs> the idea was that what needed to happen, uh, and you see this idea, I think, running through the Integrated Review in 2021 and to a lesser extent in the Integrated Review refresh in 2023, when there's a, a sort of a serious attempt in Whitehall to, to try and take a strategic approach to British defence and foreign policy, if you can call it that, um, is the creation of the literal response groups, the idea of having a Rangers res regiment, basically dedicated, a, a British Army regiment, basically dedicated to running proxy wars, get bombed up, you know, that's the, that's been the idea. Yeah, it, it sounds sort of uh, vaguely hopping mad to me. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, the, the starting point of your argument seems to be that it's surprising that the British government should support, support American foreign policy. But, but why is that surprising? Why does that need to be explained? Isn't it obvious I think that's that's an excellent question because I mean something you could just as easily say is well look right now at the atti the, the the prevailing attitudes in Europe, which are which are strikingly Atlanticist. In fact, in a way that we haven't seen for many years, and that question becomes even more pertinent in that time. I think what what's peculiar about the British case is simply the, se the sheer extent of it. And when I say that, I don't just mean, for example, the fact that you can't find any even any remote disagreement between any establishment politicians or in any of the specialist think tanks or in most, of, unfortunately, with the exception of Bradford and most of the um, academic departments. It's also just the extent of the lockstep is so great that when you look at, say, British strategic documents, which we do have, if you'll believe it, um, say the Defence Command paper, or the, finally, the China report, which was worked on for four years and was just released about six weeks or maybe two months ago. Um, or even Labour's foreign policy statement, Britain Reconnected. 
what you find is that there are whole sections that are simply cribbed from American strategic documents. Okay, they're, 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 they're not just the concepts, but the words are copied. It's, sort of, it's not polite to point this out, although I did find one mention of it, which was in the Financial Times. It was actually an uh, Atlantic Council uh, figure, if you can believe it, called Helen Ullman, who noticed that in the Defense Command refresh paper, there was just like two paragraphs that were just copied from the U.S. national security strategy. That you don't quite find with other states. So we are seeing, for example, for, you know, I think certainly principally because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there's a, there's a, there's a new springtime for NATO, no question. Um, even in Australia, so you can see that the, the winds are, although not in New Zealand, the, the movement is very much in that direction. So Britain is not completely unique in that respect. But what it is unique in, I think, is the sheer extent of it. Okay, just one five, I know I'm banging on about it, but one final example is that the US Under Secretary of Defense, Colin Carl, vis- visited uh, London about two and a half months ago. And he said some very striking things. And the most important was he was asked about, uh, of course, about the risk of a, a major global crisis in Taiwan. And he said, you know, if, he, if there was a, global, a major global crisis, what did he think Britain's position might be? And he said, he said very clearly, well, you know, we can't envision um, undergoing any major military operation without expecting that Britain will be along for the ride all the way. That, that isn't true of other states, and it requires some explanation, I think. It isn't true of other European states to that extent, to that remarkable extent. So that, that I think, is, would be the answer that, uh, yeah. that I would give there. Okay. On that note, we'll come to an end so you can buy Tom's really excellent uh, book and devour it thoroughly, which is uh, what I, I learned a lot from it. I have to say it's stuff I hadn't known. Before and uh, that's why I'm so keen to for others uh, to do the same. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Tom. More power to your elbow, and thank you everyone for coming. Thank you, thank you all so much. That was that was powerful. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.